Uh, this morning I want to begin with a bit of church history. Uh, for many of you, it will be history that you've actually uh, lived, although maybe some of you have never heard this before. And I want to just talk very briefly about the, the short history of the founding of Harvest Bible Church. On May 5th, 2011, a meeting was held at Faith Evangelical Free Church in Acton, Massachusetts. A small group of men, including myself, uh, pastors Jeff Owen and Josh Owens, uh, a few other men, as well as the superintendent of the Northeast region of the EFCA, his name is Beth Sheely. We all traveled to Massachusetts to discuss what was taking place at our home ministry of Faith Community Bible Church in Loudoun, New Hampshire. In the span of five years at this other church, they had grown from 80 people to over 400 people. And uh, nobody had really understood why. It was just kind of this thing we all witnessed happening. This is something that nobody expected. We were unsure of what to do, and the leaders intended to discuss best options for managing growth, which included the possibility of adding another service. We had two at the time. We're looking at a third. Building an addition to the building, or even stepping out further and planting a church. However, it became clear that with regards to the idea of church planting, there was more at stake than simply trying to fix and solve the seeding problem. There was, as what we talked about in the meeting, a moral imperative to proclaim the gospel and make disciples in places where Christ was not yet named. We knew that if we did nothing, it would be dangerous. And so we purposed to follow God's leading to explore the option of church planting. And while we were not yet concerned about the how, we knew that we needed to focus on the who and the where. Several New Hampshire towns were considered. We looked at different options. We looked at Guilford, we looked at Rochester, Penacook, Boscoin. But in this meeting, it was the first time that I had been named as a possible candidate for planting a church. And over the course of the previous year, I've been involved with a young men's ministry that we affectionately called Thugs. True Heroes Under God. Corny name, but wonderful ministry. I think at one point we had 15 young men under the age of 30 that were studying together. And uh, that's the first place that I really stepped into any kind of a leadership role. The goal of that group was to train up and equip young men to be used by God, however God was going to use them. We had no idea. At the same time, I was pursuing theological education, which I completed in December of 2012 from Trinity Theological Seminary out of Newburgh, Indiana. And once the green light had been given to explore the option, we began to ask around the church to see if God was tapping any other families to possibly go with us. Matt and Carla Howe were the first ones to respond. Soon after, we had Dan and Jen York, and also Rick and Paula Jordan. This would be the core of our planting team. For the next several months, we would meet together, we would train discuss theology, discuss strategy, we would plan, we would pray, and before too long we agreed that we would set our sights on Gilmanton, as I was familiar with the spiritual landscape having grown up here. By the early summer, I presented our proposal to the leadership of Faith Community. They asked a lot of questions, they played devil's advocate, they made me sweat, kept me on the edge of my seat, but finally at the end of the meeting, uh, there was a question, I should say, toward the end of the meeting, where one of the deacons asked the question, well, why Gilmanton? And at one point they asked me, have you done a feasibility study? And I'm, no, I haven't done that yet. Why Gilmanton, they asked me. My answer was this, because there's no gospel there. That's the reason. 
After several hours, the leadership voted whether or not to recommend the church planting proposal to the congregation, and the vote was unanimous. And in July of 2012, we went before the church membership, and they voted yes. And soon we would be off to Gilmanton. After an August sermon that I preached to Faith Community, Bob and Linda Reynolds approached me and said, when you go, we're going with you. Behind them, we also had Sally Jo Lobsher and her daughter Monica, Paul and Mary Alice Kiley, Jeremy and Melissa Clark. They would all follow us to Gilmanton when we planted. We arranged to rent out the Gilmanton Academy for our services and held our first test gathering on November 4th, 2012. I preached on the importance of sound doctrine and expository preaching. It was only the seventh time I had preached a sermon. So I want to apologize to all the people who were there at the first meeting for the next couple of sermons. Within two months, we were ready to step out in faith, and so we were sent off on Sunday, January 6th, and our first official service as Harvest Bible Church was January 13th, 2013. As for the name of our church, that was a subject of a spirited discussion. At one point, I actually proposed calling our church Ecclesia Bible Church, and for those who know Greek, it's supposed to be really funny. Ecclesia is church, so church, Bible church, they didn't think that was very funny. But then we were praying about the seemingly insurmountable task ahead of us. We decided on a name that was based on Matthew 9.37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And therefore, Harvest Bible Church was born. What does this verse mean, and why was this said? That's what I want to explore this morning, is that very verse. And so turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. If there were ever a time for me to give you the history of our church, this would be the verse to do it. So that's why I did that this morning. The end of Matthew 9 really brings us to a transitional point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has been teaching and healing all throughout Galilee. His disciples are standing there looking on in amazement as he does this. And very soon, however, they're going to join him in the ministry. Matthew 9.35, which we looked at several weeks ago, really is a summary statement as Matthew is transitioning his narrative storytelling It's a transitional statement. It says, Jesus was going uh, throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This is immediately followed by the reason for his calling, or excuse me, his caring ministry. Verse 36, this is the reason for why he's doing this. Verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. We looked at the Greek Really, the sense of this word compassion is his heart, his guts went out to them. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That was the heart of Christ and is the heart of Christ motivating his ministry. And so he looks out over the sea of people, this multitude of people who are coming to him, these lost sheep. These people are hurting. They need him. They need saving. And he brings them in. He has compassion on them. And from that heart, this compassionate heart, he speaks to the nature of this ministry. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. There's only two verses here I want to look at today. 
but really there's a world of meaning behind them. And so I want to, for our purposes today, I want to note three main parts of this teaching. I'm just going to give this to you as an outline. First, we're going to see the, the scope of the ministry. Second, we're going to examine the scarcity of the workers. And lastly, we're going to see the source of ministry help. So starting off here, we're going to look at the scope of the ministry. All throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was instructing his followers regarding the nature of their mission. He believed, or they believed, that he was coming to inaugurate an an immediate earthly kingdom. And Jesus taught that this kingdom had come as a spiritual kingdom. He said when when he came, he was preaching repentance, and he says the kingdom of God is is near. And at one point he says the kingdom of God is, is here with you. The disciples believed that he had come in power and dominance, but Jesus was teaching them that he had come in meekness and for the purpose of service. They believed that Jesus had come to save them all from the Romans, but he told them that he had come to save them from their sins. And every public exhortation that he gave, Jesus almost always was sure to turn aside to his disciples and explain to them privately even more about the matter. He'd been teaching and healing publicly, and people came out to him in droves. But on this particular day, he looked out at this crowd of people with compassion, and his very next comment that he made was then to his disciples. And so he turned and looked at them. So you have to imagine this crowd of people coming to him, and as they're standing there watching this crowd coming, Jesus turns, and he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Now, this is an interesting statement. Why? Because in almost every other context, harvest is referring to judgment. Just a couple of examples. In Isaiah 17, it's a message of warning given to the people of Damascus because they've turned their back on God. And so Isaiah is bringing this message of warning and judgment. He says in Isaiah 17, 10, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. And then Isaiah makes this horticultural application, this reference, and he says that they have sown the plant of a strange God. You've planted something in the ground, but it's not faith in the true God. You've sown and planted this strange God among you. He says, in the morning, you will bring your seed to blossom, but the harvest will be a heap on a day of sickliness and incurable pain. So you're planting this false God in the ground, but when this false God grows... He's not going to bring with him prosperity and blessing like you're hoping for. All you're going to have reaping from this false faith and this false God is sickliness and pain. Even more vivid is the prophecy in Joel 3.13, where Joel says to the people who have turned their hearts, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And the imagery here is that the end of the age, the Lord is coming with a sickle. It's a long uh, staff with like a blade on it used to chop down grain and crops. And he says this sickle's in his hand. He's going to chop down all the brush and squash the wicked like grapes in a wine press. And if you know what it looks like to have grapes squished by a wine press, and you see this, this juice and this wine flow out red, you see the imagery is very vivid of what this is. Again, this is an image of God's judgment. Even in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 12, John the Baptist uses a similar imagery. Speaking of the Lord, he says, 
He who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his winnowing fork. This sieve here. This winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so to be clear, John is presenting now two actions. John is first talking about a gathering of the good crop of the wheat, which he's going to store. And then he talks about this destruction of the chaff or the stubble. But the Pharisees and scribes, in line with the Old Testament prophets, they would have focused more on the judgment of the unrighteous. They love to talk about the judgment. Why? Because they believe that they were the righteous. It's very easy to talk about God judging the unrighteous when you think you're the most righteous person in the room. Oh, yes, bring that judgment in because it's not going to hit me. That's what they were doing. They always talked about God judging the unrighteous and they would castigate sinners and those who were downtrodden. To a Pharisee, the unrighteous were surely the Gentiles and the Samaritans and the commoners and anybody who was not part of the Sanhedrin. But that's not Jesus' focus here. That's not what he does. Yes, Jesus will judge the unrighteous, and he reiterates that in many, many, many places. In fact, we see later on in Matthew chapter 13, when he's telling the parable concerning the wheat and the tares, he uses the same kind of imagery that John uses. He says both the wheat, which is believers, and the tares, which is unbelievers, he says they will grow together until the harvest. He says, and then the wheat is gathered up and put into the barn. Same thing that John says. And then he says the tares are destroyed. He repeats this again in Matthew 13, 39, and then again in 49. Again, this is judgment. But there's also, in line with this, there's a, a harvest of salvation. A harvest of salvation. And in Matthew 9, 37, which is where we are, again, Jesus is moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. That's the context. So he's not thinking about judgment in that moment. In that moment, he's thinking about salvation. In fact, we see this illustrated elsewhere. Go with me to John chapter 4 in your Bible. Just flip ahead a couple of books to John chapter 4. Jesus is traveling through Samaria, which is a place that most of these Jews would not dare to go. He encounters a woman at a well. And he starts out his conversation in an ordinary fashion. He simply asks her for a drink of water. It's the middle of the day, it's hot, and you just want something to drink. But very soon after he asks her for a drink of water, he turns it into another discussion about spiritual things. And if you read the whole thing of John 4, you see how this conversation travels. Before too long, this woman turns to Christ in faith, and she runs off to tell others about her encounter with the Messiah. The next thing we see is all of Samaria coming out to Jesus in droves. And the disciples, however, they're not exactly sure what's going on. They're simply concerned about their next meal. They're asking questions about food. But we see, just look at John, we'll start in verse 31 here, John 4, 31. Again, they're coming back to Jesus. They went to get some food. They're asking about that. Verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. But do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? 
Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. And I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And so much like with the large crowd that's coming to Jesus in Matthew 9, similar kind of situation where Jesus is looking out over the multitudes of Samarians that are coming out to see him. And from this vantage point, if you're looking out over this, this either a long slope or a long hill, people coming out to see him, it's going to look like this massive crowd uh, really, a, a wheat field moving. Like you ever see crowds of people? Ever go to a baseball game and they do the wave? It doesn't look like people anymore. It looks like this big, huge wave or a field or something where the wind is blowing across the top of it. That's the image that he sees from his vantage point. The, the ripples and the movements of this large crowd coming to him. Now, the disciples think he's talking about lunch. But Jesus has something else in mind. He exhorts them in verse 35. He says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Stop talking about lunch and asking me what I had for something to eat. I don't care about that in the moment. Look at these thousands of people walking out. He says, lift your eyes and look at the fields. Now, they would have stopped and maybe said, what are you talking about, fields? Those are just a bunch of people. Look at the fields, he says, that they are white for harvest. Look at all these people. They're coming out to me to hear my message, and many will believe. He's constantly trying to shake the disciples loose of their narrow-mindedness and thinking. They're thinking about very small, temporal, minute-by-minute things like we oftentimes do. We tend to obsess over the minutia. Oh, how is this going to come together? Oh, I have this meeting tomorrow. Oh, I have this bill to pay. We think so small. Even in ministry, I think sometimes very small. And what about this and this and this? But the Lord is exhorting them, lift up your eyes. We read something like that imagery in... Psalm 24, right? Lift up, look up, and see what's going on. Lift up your eyes. Look at all these fields. They're white for harvest. So much to do right here, right now. Then we see what happens after that. Look at verse 39. This is the conclusion of that. From that city, many of the Samaritans came and believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The woman goes back, she tells everybody she can, they start to believe. But once all of the region comes out to hear him in droves, many, many people hear his testimony, hear his message, and they recognize this is the Messiah, this is my Savior, and they believe. These aren't religious Jews. These are not well-taught, well-trained people. They're not, for a lack of a better term, church people. These are Samaritans, they're half-Jews. They were Jews who had gone off and married into other cults and pagan religions. They were commoners. They were people who were hurting. They were in need. All of them were lost. And just like in Matthew chapter 9, they're coming out to him. They're distressed. They're dispirited. And Jesus looks on them with compassion as well. 
And all of them are coming out to be ministered to by one man. And in this way, he's saying the harvest is plentiful. That's really the comment that he has in his mind. Countless people, millions of people, even today, have never heard the gospel. I want to I contextualize this just a little bit further. Just to give you a frame of reference. In New Hampshire alone, the population is 1.2 million people, give or take. 1.2 million people. The most reliable evangelical pollsters report that less than 2% of the New Hampshire population affirm what we would understand to be a biblical understanding of the gospel. So less than 2% of this population. That leaves 98% of New Hampshire or 1.176 million people that we need to reach. Or even just looking at the reach of our church. In Gilmanton, there are 3,777 people at the last census. Given that there are likely believers in town who go to other churches, and I know that there are, but let's just be really generous for a second. And let's say that Gilmanton beats the average, okay? Let's just say that 10% of Gilmanton believes the gospel and knows Jesus Christ personally. That still leaves nearly 3,400 people, 3,000 people that need Jesus Christ. We can't seat 3,000 in these pews, can we? But I mean, think about revival. You think about what happened in the first church in Acts chapter 2, where 3,000 people come to trust in Jesus Christ. What if that happened here and now? Are you ready for that? But that's the idea. that, that That's not just one or two or ten. That there are so many people that need to be reached. And I'll tell you, just from a ministerial perspective, it feels overwhelming. Forget 1.2 million. I'm overwhelmed with the idea that we have a whole town of people who need Jesus. Now, by God's grace, I know that many of you have talked to your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers, and I hear stories all the time of those who are bearing witness to Christ, and people are asking questions, and they'll call the church, and they'll email, and they're curious about what's going on, and that's exciting. But we could even look out in our own backyard and we could look and say the harvest is plentiful. So much work to do just in Gilmanton. And I know that there's probably 20 towns worth of people represented even in these pews. Lots of people even where you live, if you don't live in Gilmanton, who need to hear the gospel. But that's what makes this challenging, is that we understand that the harvest is plentiful. We know that there's a lot of people who need to come to know Jesus Christ. But what makes it even more challenging is Jesus' second phrase. His second phrase, but the workers are few. Number two, we're going to look at the scarcity of workers. Go back to Matthew. This Greek word for worker, ergates, literally means worker or laborer. But the accepted meaning in the context of the imagery here is that these are field laborers. These are those who've gone out into the fields with tools, with their, with their hands, and they're working in the harvest fields. Now, when we look at the scope of Christian ministry, these workers come in many forms. Lots of different kinds of workers. Jesus' disciples, the twelve, they would eventually become apostles, those who have authority sent from God to bring a message, and they have authority from Him, apostolic authority. Later on in Ephesians 2.20, Paul calls the apostles and the prophets the foundation. So they're the foundation of the ministry even that we do. They're the very foundation. Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone, he says. But if we look ahead at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we see that God is giving 
evangelists and pastors and all kinds of teachers for the work of ministry. In truth, though, any Christian who labors for the gospel is a worker in the Lord's harvest. If you're doing any kind of gospel ministry, and I think sometimes we wrongly assume that it's the, it's the paid guy that does the job. It, well, you know, we, we, we have him in vocational ministry. He's supposed to go out and, and minister the gospel. And I'll tell you, 2 Timothy 4, 5 says that part of my job is to do the work of an evangelist. But let me tell you, if you have the gospel, if you understand the message of salvation, and if you belong to Christ, you certainly should. That's the message by which you were saved. But if you have that gospel, there is a responsibility to you given by heaven to bring that message to other people. Now, you might not have a a large scope of people around you, but whoever is in front of you, that's your stewardship right in front of you. Again, some are vocational ministers, but many are not. Lots of those who do gospel ministry are not doing that full time. Paul actually elaborates on this a little bit further in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm just going to read this to you. He notes here in 1 Corinthians 3, 6-9, he says, I planted... Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. So then neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. They do the same kind of ministry. So, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Then he says this, for we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. And so there is a sense that we're joining. Now, again, we're not apostles here. I'm not an apostle. Neither are you. We're not prophets. But we are those who do the work of gospel ministry. Now, again, Paul is also quick to note here that it's not the field workers that cause the increase. There's nothing that you or I are going to do that are going to produce this artificially. We can plant seeds. We can plant churches. We can water, we can teach and disciple and train. We can pray, we can encourage, we can exhort, we can minister. We labor, but we don't cause the growth. I'm always sort of flabbergasted by the so-called church growth movement. Essentially, this movement, at the very core of it, it's built around nothing more than a program of tactics to fill buildings with people and call it growth. Now, again, it's good to have a full building of people who want to hear the gospel and want to grow in Christ. But if that's truly happening, it's because God is causing true spiritual growth. And not because we want a sort of a seminar. I went to a seminar to build up people in my church. There's seminars of how to break the 200 barrier and how to increase your church by this much percent or whatever man-made tactic you're going to have. We don't kowtow to revivalism. We don't, we don't push and try to manufacture false growth because all that does is produce false converts. And then guess what? You have a whole bunch of false converts sitting in a room. What do you have to do? You have to do harder work. Then you have to convince someone who actually does not belong to Christ that they're not saved, undo that thing, and then minister the gospel to them to lead them to Christ. It's more work. So any ministry that that builds false converts and brings about false conversion is a ministry that goes contrary to true gospel ministry. We have one tactic. Want to know what this tactic is? We preach Christ. We preach Christ. You preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and guess what? He causes the growth. He does something that I can't explain. He reaches into a person's heart and revives them, gives them a new heart, 
gives them new affections, gives them new love, changes their mind, changes their attitude, changes their thinking. I can't produce that and neither can you. But God does it. He does it when Christ is proclaimed. And the way when people grow, it's because of Christ, not because of some program that we've adopted or some, heaven forbid, personality cult we've started. If you're here because of me, find a better church. But if you're here because of Christ, then please stay. But Jesus says here that despite the harvest being plentiful, lots of people coming and needing the the ministry of the gospel, lots of people need Christ. He says the number of the workers is few. I thought you were going to encourage me today, Nate. (laughs) This is hard work now, isn't it? Not only is there so much to do, but there's so few, he says. In fact, fewer than we would have thought we needed and fewer than we might like. Why is that? Why is that? I I was thinking about that this week. If Christ is so glorious and the gospel so marvelous, I I found myself asking, Lord, why wouldn't you just send a whole army, flood the earth with more and more ministers of the gospel? But that's human thinking. That's Nate's thinking. Possibly your thinking. Here's why I believe it's not so. The The reason God does this, I think, is because when the mission is successful, and it will be, It can't be attributed to size or ability or human power, to the workforce. The only way that it will be attributed to be successful is because of the power of God. Why did Gideon only have 300 soldiers? Now, Gideon, he's a general, he's thinking, I could really use like 10,000. God gives him 300. Now, humanly speaking, that's not smart. But in God's economy, it's brilliant. Because again, God gets the glory when things happen. And so when God uses small churches, insignificant ministries, those who don't seem like they'd be able to speak and minister, when He uses small people in huge ways, then He gets glory. So I believe that this tactic, this philosophy of ministry is a godly philosophy where He does it this way. That leads us to our last point. Well... You might ask, what happens when we need more help? Because we do get to points where we say, Lord, we need more. I mean, even, even our own church, we need more leaders, don't we? More deacons, more people. We, we always need more, asking the Lord for more. And so that's number three, the source of ministry help. Because here's how it goes. We see a large number of unreached people, and then we see the scarcity of qualified laborers And the temptation for ourselves is to say this, we need to get more workers. And we begin to strategize. How are we going to do this? But that's not the instruction the Lord gives here. Look at verse 38. With all things considered, when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, we've got so many people that need to to be reached, he says, but the workers are few. Therefore, verse 38, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This word for uh, beseech is diomai in the Greek. It means to request, to pray, even to beg, to entreat the Lord. The idea is that we eagerly turn to the Lord. And why? Well, because he's the Lord of the harvest, it says here. He's the Lord of the harvest. It all belongs to him. The people belong to him. The gospel message belongs to Him. The judgment belongs to Him. And the salvation belongs to Him. 
So if you want to do anything in ministry, you have to appeal to the one who owns and operates the ministry. So many times you hear about those who get into the ministry and, and you, look, you trace their history and you look at, okay, how did they get into this ministry? Not that I, I don't want to get into, I don't name call, I don't name drop when I don't need to. I think it's bad form if you don't need to do it. But I think sometimes, like Paul does in his letters, it's appropriate. Uh, if you've paid attention to the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church in, in uh, Seattle, Washington, the reason it's in the news again is because not only was Mars Hill Church destroyed and ruined by Mark Driscoll, he's now planted another church several years ago, uh, Trinity something church in Arizona. That's now blowing up because of his same sins. So we see this pattern. When you trace back the history of Mark Driscoll's ministry, nobody called him. He decided one day in his living room to go and do this ministry. Nobody examined him. Nobody affirmed him. Nobody looked at him. Nobody who was ordained even talked to him about any of this. It was in his mind. I'm just going to go do this and see what happens. Built a massive ministry and then hurt a lot of people because he was not qualified. Still is not qualified. Now, I take that as a warning. I used to love Mark Driscoll. I still love him as a man. I used to love his ministry. Now I see that there's errors and problems with it. I've had to repent of recommending his material to other people. But here's the thing. This is not something that we manufacture. We don't create this on our own. When we need help, ministerial help, gospel help, when we need ministers and missionaries and elders and pastors and deacons and teachers and evangelists, we are to beseech to earnestly ask the Lord, and He will help us. I remember, just going back to some harvest history here, when we planted the church, it was really, I mean, just the, these core families, and we would get together in meetings and kind of look at each other, and I was called as a pastor and affirmed by our ascending church, but we were contemplating eldership. And, and the men in our group, we'd kind of look at each other and say, well, how's this going to go? And it was nerve-wracking, and I remember specifically praying with a brother, and he says, well, it would be great if there would be a way to get leaders to come and serve with you. Is there, are there elders at your previous church who can send? And I said, no, they're, they're on short supply in our sending church. They're having a hard time getting elders as well. And I remember he said, well, let's pray the Lord would send you some families. He said, let's specifically pray that the Lord would send two husband and wife couples who were older, who had been through some ministry, who could come alongside and help you. Now, I was at the point of discouragement, skeptical, and I said, brother, I'll pray with you. And we prayed, Lord, send two couples to our church. In August, on the same Sunday, Ken and Suzanne Marvin and Terry and Joanne Mel walked in the door. And I, it was Jack Sullivan. I looked at Jack and I said, no, this can't, come on. He says, I don't know. We'll wait and see. But we did, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you move a people from Austin, Texas, or Massachusetts, how do you grab them and say, you're going to do this ministry? You don't. You ask God, Lord, would you please send people to bless this church? Would you please send the help that we need? And let me tell you, beloved, eight short years, God is faithful. He's always faithful. He has taken care of us. He has loved us. He's blessed us. Sometimes we think it's by the skin of our teeth. It's not by the skin of his teeth, if he even has teeth. No. God provides out of the abundance of His provision. He says here, by this, His own prerogative, that He will, and the Greek word is ekbalo, 
literally drive out, cast out, thrust out, send out. He will send out and cast out and thrust out ministers and workers for the gospel. It's almost like he has this stash of those he has called and he sends them out liberally at his design. That he sends them out, workers, into his harvest to do the ministry. This is really important. Because if we try to force God's hand and force this on our own volition, we will inevitably fail. If we try to create or call or send workers in our own strength, we'll run the risk of sending the wrong kinds of laborers into God's field. And woe to us if we go to send someone who's not qualified to go and do something God has not called them to do. There are at least two kinds of workers that can be sent out wrongly. The first one would be what Jesus talked about in John 10, verses 12 and 13. He says that there are those who are hired hands who care nothing for the sheep. And let me tell you, New England is full of hired hands who care nothing for the sheep. Those who have held captive the pastoral ministry and held on to their pulpits for sometimes decades and robbed the church of gospel ministry to their own shame. They've collected a paycheck, they've collected a retirement, and they have cast their own churches into darkness. And woe to any minister who withholds the gospel from God's people. But Jesus talks about them. Hired hands who care nothing for the sheep. This person, they're filling a space, they're collecting a paycheck, they're stealing from the church. They might even be trained. They probably went to seminary. However, they don't share the Lord's love and compassion for the flock. Give me an uneducated worker who loves the church and loves Christ, and I'll teach them everything I know and more. That's, those are easy to work with. Someone who loves the church, who loves Jesus, who wants to serve, who wants to grow, that's easy. Then I can just say, here, read the stack of books and talk to me after. There's more than that. But I'll tell you, a seminary grad, they could, they could, they could have five PhDs from the best seminaries. If they don't have love and don't have godliness, they're virtually useless to the church. And that happens too. We have to be careful, my friends, to send out and to affirm those that God is calling. And we have to be, we're careful about this process. That's why we drag poor Ken through the same thing all over again, even though we did this five years ago, because we want to make sure that we're affirming the right people for ministry. This is why ordination matters. This is why examination matters. 1 Timothy 3 talks about not laying hands on an elder too quickly. Someone who says, I want to be an elder, I want to serve, and okay, sounds good, and you get excited, you bring the guy into ministry, you lay hands and affirm him, and then what happens? You absorb his sins. Whatever they're doing in ungodliness because they haven't been tested and examined, the church bears the brunt of that. And so Paul warns us not to do that. The second kind of worker that God has not called into his harvest, they exist there for their own glory. These are what Paul calls deceitful workers in 2 Corinthians 11.13 or evil workers in Philippians 3.2. These are those who God has not called but they have inserted themselves into the ministry. And these evil workers, Paul says, can do damage to the harvest and they spoil the crops. Because more than just being negligent, they have an ulterior motive. If we need laborers, we are to entreat the Lord for Him to send laborers into His harvest field and not try to force His hand. 
And I'll tell you, no sooner did Jesus tell the disciples that the Lord of the harvest was preparing to send out laborers, that He would then send out His own disciples into ministry. And when we get to Matthew chapter 10, that's the beginning of it. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks. But what is the message that is sown into the hearts and minds of those who would believe? We talked a lot about the harvest fields and those who are coming to Jesus Christ and those who are going to be reached and those who are doing the gospel ministry. What is the substance of our ministry? Now, I said earlier we we preach Christ. But what is it about Christ we preach? Well, we affirm the truth of Christ. We affirm that He is the second person of the Trinity. That He is God Himself not merely a teacher, not merely a good rabbi or good example. He is truly, in every sense, God, and He is truly, in every sense, man. Two natures in one. But He is the Savior of the world, and He came into the world, Himself perfect and spotless without sin, and He gave His life as a ransom. And He gave Himself over to His enemies, and they put Him on the cross, and they nailed His hands and His feet, and they put a crown of thorns on His head, They mocked Him, they persecuted Him, and they killed Him. But let me tell you, He says that they don't take My life. I give it of My own accord. And He says, I have authority to give it up and and then take it up as well. But why did He do it? He did it because by giving His life on the cross, He's paying for people's sins. That when you confess your sins to Jesus, when you confess and repent and turn from your sins, the sins you've committed in your life, and even the sins you will commit, When you turn away from your sins and put your faith and your trust in Jesus, your sins are then paid for on the cross. And when they're paid for, the Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so by repentance and faith, we turn, we trust in Jesus, and He is the Savior. But He didn't just stay on the cross, friends. He went into the ground and He rose the third day. He resurrected to new life. Why? to bring forth life, to be the first fruits of new life, the life that we share with Him to all those who believe. And so our message is a gospel message to tell people everywhere. It doesn't matter where you've come from, who you are, what you've done, your background, your ethnicity, your nationality. It does not matter one bit who you are. All those who need Christ come to Christ. And I would even exhort you, even now, I have no idea who's listening here or at home or on the live stream, I don't know. And frankly, hear this rightly, I don't care. If you need Christ, come to Him. Turn from your sins. If you recognize, I've lived my life on my own. I've done it my way and it's wrong. And I've sinned against God. And when I stand before Him on Judgment Day, I'm not going to be able to stand. I'm going to be condemned. If you recognize that, then turn from your sins. And trust in Jesus Christ. And He says you will have eternal life. God will forgive you if you trust in Him. If you repent. That is our message. Friends, it's not complicated. It's not. We make it so difficult. We put so many obstacles in the way. So many other steps and so many other systems and so many other philosophies. No. Turn from your sins. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you will have life. That message changes people. It gives them new life because He gives them new life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that You are the Lord of the harvest. That all of this belongs to You. 
And God, we ought to tremble, and I think we do, when we consider even this ministry. Father, in our own self-efforts, in our own sinfulness, it would be so easy for us to think that we're going to go and build something or do something or change something in our own strength. And Father, I pray that you would protect us, protect the leadership from that kind of mindset. Protect us from this self-made desire to create false growth and false converts. But Lord, that we would seek earnest and true gospel ministry. That we would declare a life-saving message that in itself is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are believing, it is life eternal. And so, Father, have mercy and give us grace. And Lord, as we continue to grow numerically, as our needs continue to increase, and as things begin to happen here, I earnestly pray and I entreat you, Lord, on behalf of this church, that you would continue to send the right people for ministry, for those who would lead, for those who would serve, for those who would bless and give and go. Lord, help us to be part of the solution that you have here. Help us to be part of this this wonderful ministry of harvesting these crops, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would find us faithful and bless us, Lord. We wait for you. This belongs to you, so we wait for you. We look to you. We ask you in faith. And we rejoice that we've been given this opportunity to minister this glorious gospel to those who need it most. Help us, Lord, to trust you. We thank you for the blessing of this ministry, and we thank you for this church. We honor you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.